The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Good evening, Tom. Fine, thank you. And yourself? Pretty good. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, thank you. And thank all of you. Yeah, there we go. Father, I thought we could we could start tonight with uh, some of Francis's recent comments and his visit to Chile there. And uh, one in particular, when he was uh, speaking, I believe, to the Jesuits down there, he, in regards to some of the, uh, the child abuse scandals that have been happening in the Novus Ordo Church there, this quote in particular, he said, Yesterday I spoke to the priest and religious men and women of Chile in the Cathedral of Santiago. This is the greatest desolation that the church is suffering. It brings shame, but we need to remember that shame is also a very Ignatian grace, a grace that St. Ignatius asks of us to make in the three colloquies of the first week, and so let us take it as a grace and be fully ashamed. We have to love the church with her wounds, many wounds. Any comment on that, Father? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, how long do we have here, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, again, this is uh, an example of Francis's wisdom which is uh, not the wisdom of God, but is really the false wisdom of, of the devil. It really is. Um, he's talking about child abuse by the clergy. He's talking about clergymen uh, actually abusing children and uh, assaulting them, not only physically, but emotionally and psychologically, and uh, scarring them for life, if, if not worse. And uh, he's, he's saying that um, there's a certain benefit to this insofar as we do something that, makes, that is shameful and makes us ashamed. And uh, shame is, if I you know, can interpret what he's saying here, uh, something that is good. And so we should revel in the shame. Uh, but you know... I don't want to misinterpret or over overstate what he, what he's remarking here, but he, he's talking about uh, us taking a certain joy or a certain spiritual satisfaction in the shamefulness of what has been done. Um, now, look, as Catholics, we know that God uh, allows evil to happen because He, God, by grace can bring the greater good out of every evil that we can perpetrate, okay? So, uh, but God does not rejoice in the evil, nonetheless, you know. Um, when we do something that is shameful, he will give us the grace we need to be ashamed of it, okay? But God does not rejoice in our shame. Francis rejoices in the shamefulness of it all. He rejoices in the shame. <clears throat> Now, it should come as no surprise to us that Francis has already announced that he uh, is in agreement with the Lutherans and their, and their, uh, their theology of redemption. The whole Noah's Ordo Church and all of its members are officially now in agreement with the teaching of Martin Luther, actually, with regard to their understanding of the redemption. But Martin Luther actually taught that we're saved by faith alone, and that faith is simply a matter of accepting that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for us. And so our sins are all, are all paid for. The redemption is uh, in place for all of those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, as it is called. So that all sins, past, present, and future, are all accounted for, but they're all redeemed, they're all whitewashed, and so we are not responsible for them any longer, okay? <clears throat> now, Luther got to the point where he said that if, you're, if you are tempted to think you can resist a temptation, right? If you, if you have a temptation come to you, and then it occurs to you that you can resist that temptation, that's your pride. 
So you should give in to it out of humility, to humble yourself, as it were, to shame yourself, uh, just to make yourself accept and, and reiterate the fact that, no, Christ died for your sins, so it doesn't matter that you sin. And the fact that you, you actually think that you can resist the temptation is your pride. It is a kind of a sin in itself. In fact, it's about the only sin that matters anymore, because the very thought that you can resist temptation is, again, <clears throat> a contrary to your faith that Christ paid for that sin. And so, in order to reassert your faith that Christ died for your sins and they're all gone, you should go ahead and commit the sin to assert, reassert your confidence in the redemption. So, you know, the, the teaching of, uh, of Francis in this regard, the idea of uh, the usefulness of sin for our salvation, <clears throat> is totally contrary to Catholic, Catholic understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a, a man who is known to history as the Mad Monk, a Russian, Rasputin. Right? The history of Rasputin is not very well known. His name is very well known, but the history of Rasputin is not. Why they continue to call him a monk, I think, is simply a matter of attacking the whole idea of monasticism. Because Rasputin was not a monk. He was kind of a self-constituted monk in his own his own religious way. This man was a very sick, demented, deranged, possibly possessed man who exercised a, a, a demonic influence over the, the czarist family of you know, uh, Russia. And, uh, but, but this man, uh, Rasputin, had, had his whole theology of redemption, and it was based on sin. That sin was the key to salvation. <clears throat> Because, again, it was a humbling thing. Right? The shamefulness of it was humbling, and humility brought us closer to God. So we should sin to humble ourselves for the sake of approaching God, being closer to God, and thus being saved. <clears throat> so when sin, sin becomes the formula, uh, e even the moral imperative of salvation, because it, it brings you greater faith in God, and enables you to have greater humility because shamefulness of what you do, this is exactly the devil's moral theology. You know? If the devil was going to produce a moral theology, <clears throat> this would be it. Sin to humble yourself. And just trust God to save you because you're humbled by your sins. Right? Is that what Christ taught? No. It's exactly the opposite of what Christ taught. Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, our Lord said, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I command you? That is, observe the commandments of God. Right? Uh, St. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, right toward the beginning of the, um, of the Sermon on the Mount, right? After the Beatitudes. But our Lord says, He who uh, breaks the least of my commandments and teaches others by his bad example will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. He who keeps, keeps even the least of my commandments will be considered the great in the kingdom of heaven. What is not said, but what is definitely implied, is that those who break the great commandments are not even going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Right? All of the <laughs> teachings of Luther and uh, Rasputin and all the rest of that, that crowd are not teaching what Christ taught. They're they're, they are uh, teaching the moral theology of the Antichrist. And so Francis joins them in this, as far as I can see. Um, does he come out and say word for word? No. Does he, does he essentially make the point that they make? Yeah, I think he does. To the Jesuits in Chile back in mid-January of this year. Something else I noticed, by the way, in this, is what he says about the poor. He says... Um, there, there are any number of things he says here. This was brought to our attention by, by Jorge, by the way. I have to give him credit for that. Um, he uh, seems to be privy to a great deal of information. Um, there's so much that could be tapped into here. Uh, it's just a, a horror, a, a horrible, horrible caricature of Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. But he also says here, a poor church for the poor. The poor are not a theoretical formula of the Communist Party. 
The poor are the heart of the gospel. They are the center of the gospel. We cannot preach in the gospel without the poor. So I say to you, it is along this line that I feel the Spirit is leading us. Well, well, a Spirit is leading him along this line, but it <laughs> certainly isn't. Notice they went from the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit to just the Spirit. Okay, no holy here. Okay. So he's definitely being led by a Spirit, and it's a false Spirit. No doubt about it. The poor are not the heart of the gospel. God's love for mankind and his call of uh, mankind to love him. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest commandment. And the second is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Okay? Francis has them inside out, upside down, and backwards. And not only that, but uh, to say we can't preach the gospel without the poor? I thought, I thought the gospel was actually about the redemption of sinners. The gospel was about the forgiveness of sins, right? And the return of the sinner to God. Francis doesn't equate the sinner with the poor. He's talking about the poor in material terms only. Materially poor, okay? He reminds me exactly of Peter. When our Lord said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, because you are a scandal to me, because you mind the things of man and not the things of God. As Francis uh, talks like a dyed-in-the-wool materialist, because everything he says is about material, material. It's all about money when he's condemning it, talking about greed when he's condemning it. He's obsessing with the things of the world. I can't help but think that our Lord sees him as a scandal even to God in heaven. And uh, because he obsesses about the things of the world, about the things of men and not about, and not concerned about the things of God. Oh, I mean, he, he tries to put a, a certain spin on it um, to give the impression that he's, he's talking about these things in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. But it, this veneer of false spirituality, I'm sorry, it doesn't go anywhere. It, it, uh, any, anybody can see right through it. Mm -hmm. This is not what he means. That's why the atheists see right through it. The materialists see right through it. They're not deterred by any veneer of spirituality that he that he that he puts out, because they know it, it is meaningless. <clears throat> it is simply there to deceive the Catholic people. Unfortunately, he is still conceiving. He is still deceiving the Catholic people, many of them. But I'm afraid many of them uh, actually want to be deceived. Mm -hmm. Father, how 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 crazy is this? How messed up is this? That here we have a man who is supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, and, and you know you you gave the. Uh, Luther's teaching there about if you feel that you can resist this temptation to, to go against that, to sin boldly. And I think any of us can imagine Francis saying that. I mean, just hearing you talk about it, it sounds exactly like something that Francis would say. You know, he, as far as the, uh, those in, in, uh, in, in sinful unions, he, he tells them, you know, not, not, to, not to try and fight that, you know, that it, the temptation is too much for you, so just, just go ahead and do it, essentially. And just... You know, it, it, a man who's supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth is just expressing perfect uh, Lutheranism. And then also, as, as far as, you know, you commented about the uh, preaching the, the gospel as we can't do it without the poor. That's perfect Marxism. He, he sounds exactly like Marx there. And so a man who's supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth is, is espousing perfect uh, Lutheranism, perfect Marxism, but nothing, nothing Catholic at all. If Francis would say, we cannot preach the gospel without referring to sinners... I would agree with him. Yeah. But that's not what he's saying here. Not at all. Yeah. So, um, uh, look, you know, there, there was a time uh, a few years ago when Francis, maybe just a couple of years ago, was talking to the clergy of Rome. Got a young clergyman in Rome told Francis, you know, many of our, our marriages are invalid. What can we do about it? Francis even went on to say the vast majority of their marriages are invalid. But he said he had no idea what to do about it. I thought that was bad. But now, <laughs> how can he get up in front of priests? Well, mm -hmm. are they really? <laughs> are they really Catholic priests? And say to them, look, you know, abuse is a terrible thing. But, you know, there is this sort of upside to it that after committing abuse, you can be really ashamed of it. And shame is really good for you. So, you know, it's, it's not a lose-lose a, a situation. There is, there's a positive aspect to the whole thing. He's going to actually say that to members of his clergy. Mm -hmm. 
holy smokes. No, unholy smokes, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, this is outrageous. I can't imagine that people, I can't imagine any Catholic person uh, being any less than horrified by that and, and begin to think there's something gravely wrong mm -hmm. with this. Father, after all of this fiasco, he has the audacity to say, you know, talking about uh, Paul VI being canonized, he says that Benedict and, and himself are on the waiting list to become saints. Uh, really? so, so just, yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that wonderful? Well, you know something, St. Pius X, in is issuing his encyclical on the errors, condemning the errors of the modernists, Bashendi Dominici Gregis, in 1907, said that the chief characteristic of the modernist was audacity. And something tells me he had Francis in mind. Yeah. Um, Francis might well have read the encyclical of Pope Pius X as a textbook, <laughs> and decided he's going to put it into practice. Um, yeah, he's, he's on the waiting list to be a saint, okay? You know, why, why doesn't he take a cut in line? Why doesn't he go, <laughs> while he's canonizing Paul VI, oh my goodness, I mean, the thought is outrageous. Father uh, Luigi Villa, you know, raised the question of canonization, beatification of Paul VI, and he said, never, it's outrageous, it's impossible. Um, <clears throat> But why doesn't he just save himself some trouble and go ahead and canonize Paul VI and, uh, let's see, uh, and himself at the same time and get it over with, you know? Um, he might as well, you know? He's making a mockery of the whole process anyway. Uh, he's making a process of the whole notion of sanctity. So, um, <clears throat> what is he? Got a number? He took a number? He's waiting. He's waiting for his number to be called, though. Well, I'll tell you, uh, something tells me that, uh, well, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise restraint at this point. <laughs> but I mean, the man is, um, he's a scandal. That's what our Lord said. Uh, Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said to him, because you are a scandal to me. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, those are terrible words. But they were addressed to the very man whom our Lord had just moments before called Peter the Rock. Um, and uh, when I, you know, Francis is without a doubt, no, no, Sadie Vicantis and uh, Sadie Plainis, whoever you want to call them, can all agree on this. Francis is the Pope of the Novus Ordo. He is. He's the Pope of the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. And he speaks like a Pope of the Novus Ordo. He's, a, he's an practically subsistent modernism. And um, when, he, when he speaks, it is a scandal to God and man. Mm -hmm. Father, just, just for clarity's sake, what is the traditional Catholic teaching on, on this idea of God bringing good from evil? And because I, I've often had this thought that, that, uh, that someone who, who is a great sinner, who, who later on has, has some kind of spiritual conversion in his life, that all of, all of his sins from his past life can, can be a great source of, of humility by remembering those sins it can prevent him from, from falling into the sin of pride. And, uh, you know, God so often brings the greatest goods from the greatest evils. So what is the, the, the church's traditional teaching on, on this matter? Well, true humility has to do with repentance. And repentance always involves contrition. And contrition is, as you learned, uh, way back when you were preparing for First Communion, a hatred for sin. In other words, we don't look at the upside of sin, saying, well, sin isn't all bad. I mean, you know, it, it, it makes you humble. That's a good thing, right? <laughs> no, no, true contrition does not do that at all. Uh, true contrition is an actual hatred for sin. Sin is a moral evil. It is an abscess of the, in the soul. It is the absence of a per perfection, of a virtue that should be there. Uh, it is a rejection of divine grace. Okay? So, as with what we're talking about, physical evil or moral evil, as St. Augustine pointed out so well, after he escaped from the Manichaean Gnostics, that evil is an, is an emptiness. It's, a, it's an emptiness where there should be something. It's a nothing <coughs> where there should be something. Um, uh, uh, there's, a stone is not meant to see, so a blind, the blindness of a stone is not an evil. 
a human being is meant to see. So the blindness of a human being is a physical evil. It's the absence of a power that God designed to be there. Um, and uh, in this soul now, God designs the soul to have certain virtues, okay? And uh, so the rectitude of conscience and uh, then the added uh, state of grace uh, were in Adam, right? And sin brought in uh, evil, which was basically a negation of these perfections in the very soul of Adam and Eve. And so it is with us. Uh, sin has wrought that like an acid eating away what perfections should be in the soul. Now the fact is that we can, uh, when we sin, God does give us the grace uh, to repent. He gives us the grace of contrition. And that requires humility, there's no doubt about it, okay? But the contrition, the repentance, the humility, all have the effect of lamenting sin as the ultimate evil and actually literally hating the sin because it is the absence of God and God's works in the soul. When one loves someone, we hate what is opposed to them, what attacks them. When we love God, we hate what drives God away from us, or us away from God. When we love God, we hate the absence of God. And the human will is the only power in, in this material creation that has the power to say to God, get out of my soul, get out of my soul. Now they can't order God out according to his natural, uh, for us, presence in the sense that God is present as creator, right? and sustainer. God is present in all things by his power, his, his essence, uh, his, his, uh, his knowledge, right? Um, um, he, he is present there and sustains all things in existence, including Lucifer himself, you know. But nonetheless, uh, where there should be the handiwork of God in our soul, the perfections um, of the soul in, in virtues, beginning with, well, ultimately faith, hope, and charity. And when we reject those graces and, and, and drive those virtues out of our souls, we are leaving an abscess or an absence in, the, in our souls, which we have to find abhorrent and hateful, because there we have the absence of God whom we love. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to a matter of charity and love of God. And uh, the idea that, um, like, a, take a Mary Magdalene, okay? I, I guess um, to try to get to the point of your question, <coughs> to take a Mary Magdalene, when she came into the house of the Pharisee and she saw our Lord so ill-treated that he was not given the basin to wash his feet, he was not given anything to dry his feet with or anything of the kind, uh, any of the normal amenities, he was insulted in the house of the Pharisee. Uh, she was so moved that she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. And, um, uh, you know, so, so the Pharisee objected and said, well, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. You know, she wouldn't, he wouldn't let her touch him. And our Lord simply pointed out to him, because she has been forgiven much, she loves much, okay? Um, our, our Lord did not say of her... Look, you know, she's mindful of her sins. Um, I actually had to drive seven devils out of this woman, so give her a break, you know. She's trying. Or she's embarrassed by the sin she committed. And uh, so she's, she's humbled herself. She's come in here, and even though she knew you would make fun of her, okay, she was willing to be uh, ashamed of her sins, and that is the key to all good things, that she's forgiven. <coughs> it was... It was the love of God that moved her and uh, moved our Lord to forgive her. So it has to start with that. Point being, when we sin, uh, there are people who can be very, very much ashamed of their sins and they end their lives. They can be ashamed of their sins. Do you think Judas was ashamed of what he had done? 
Judas was ashamed of his sin. He was. He took the money, he threw it back into the temple. It burned in his hand, right? And what he had lusted for before, that silver, now he hated the silver, okay? But that hatred of the silver that he flung back into the temple in a rage did not move him. The shame, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's almost like he had let himself down. He was ashamed of himself. And so you know what happened in his, his ill end. He went off and he hung himself. Shame in itself is not salutary. Shame is not necessarily a matter of loving God. It's not even a matter of necessary repentance. Judas was deathly ashamed. Uh, he was ashamed unto death by his sin. He couldn't face anybody. He wouldn't go face our Lord. He wouldn't even ask for forgiveness. If he had humbled himself and gone to ask for forgiveness from our Lord, do you think our Lord would have, could have forgiven him? If he truly repented, our Lord was trying. But Judas would not do that. His shame led him to the ultimate sin of suicide. The ultimate rejection, even of his own life, and even perhaps of the thought he had of, of his own existence. Rather than humble himself before God, no, no, his shame was still a matter of his own pride. He had let himself down, not God. There was no love for God there. So what Francis is saying here, again, I mean, this is the spirituality of the devil. For someone to be ashamed of the fact that he had abused these children and done such damage to them does not necessarily translate to the fact that someone is ashamed because he's offended God. <clears throat> but because he somehow lowered himself, disgraced himself. And like Judas can go off and he can end it all. So Francis is saying uh, that shame is salutary and we should, you know, look at the bright side of this, you know, bring shame. I'm saying that Francis doesn't even begin to realize the nature of the sin or to really even understand the nature of redemption. It comes down to a matter of loving God and being ashamed because of the love for God. That's repentance. But that is what leads us to God to beg for forgiveness. A hatred of the sin and a rejection of the sin and a willingness to do whatever we can to make reparation for the sin. But Judas wanted none of that. I'm afraid uh, the spirituality that Francis is giving us this is the spirituality of of Judas, not Peter. Mm -hmm. You know, Father, this is great. What what you're saying seems to be uh, perfectly in line with with what's with what's written in, in many traditional Catholic books on the the spiritual life. I can think of it in particular uh, the spiritual combat book and also the, the divine abandonment book. They both talk about this idea of, of of when we inevitably fall, not not to fret so much about it, not to not to uh, kind of obsess over over our failings and, and our faults. Because they, they seem to make the distinction, like you did, between having contrition for your sins and just being ashamed of your sins. You hate how they how they make you you feel. You just have the shame that makes you feel terrible. And that that line is perfectly. I mean, that that's what Satan does. That, that's his that's his his pastime is to feel sorry for himself. And that, that's how how he spends his eternity is feeling sorry for himself right. and, and reveling in, in self pity. And that's totally opposed to this Catholic idea of having contrition, true contrition for your sin, which is based on. A love for God, oh, and, and that's the the course that that, uh, that spiritual writers recommend is when you do fall, you, you know, focus on your love for God, focus on how good He is, and and that will lead you to a true contrition, a hatred for your sins, rather than this this shame. Well, the pagans have a sense of honor, and when they somehow dishonor themselves, when they dishonor themselves and not live up to their own self-image, then they want they're willing to destroy themselves. The Harry Carey or, uh, is part of that, you know, just decides, disgraced myself, so I'm going to do myself in. That's purely pagan. It's pure paganism. But, you, but you, Tom, you, you understand. What you've said is so, is so uh, uh, spot on as far as the, the spiritual writers that talk about this. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Yeah, so that, that shame that Francis is talking about can be very proud and hellish and lead to self-destruction, not to repentance. He leaves out he leaves out the whole question of the love for God mm -hmm. as the motive for repentance. It's really a shame, huh? It really is a shame, but I don't know if he's ashamed of it. <laughs> he seems to be very proud of it. Yeah. Well, Father, let's let's try and get to a few emails here. Our uh, inbox is overflowing as usual. 
Uh, we just received this email recently, but I thought it was, it was a great a great topic that we could discuss. Where he this this viewer writes in and asks, "What are some of the practical ways to cooperate with the grace of God?" I think sometimes we forget about the small, mundane inconveniences we experience in our daily lives. For example, dropping something on the floor, being sleep deprived, a, a driver cutting us off in traffic, etc. How can we properly offer these things to God? Is it a matter of simply saying, Lord, please take my annoyance from these inconveniences as a sacrifice? Sometimes it seems that offering God something so trivial is unworthy of God. But on the other hand, maybe offering God everything keeps us in a state of continual prayer. Any comments there? Well, take, take a married life for a couple who are very happily married to each other. Nothing is too trivial for them to do for each other. Uh, the wife will do the laundry as an act of love. She doesn't just do the laundry, clean the husband's clothes, take them in and throw them on the floor in the bedroom and say, here, your clothes are clean. I mean, even the way she folds things and puts them in the drawer can be an expression of her love for her husband, right? She may not think of it explicitly, but it is. And so often when the husband uh, sees his wife do things the way that he, she knows that he knows, she knows, are significant to him and important to him. And he, he appreciates that. He realizes that his wife is doing these things as an act of love for him. She's taking seriously what is important to him. And when, when a husband does what he does, um, even though otherwise he, would, he might say, oh, this isn't important, but it is important to him that it be done a certain way because he knows it's important to the woman he loves so much. And so it's an expression of his love for her that he will do this in this way at this time because he knows that uh, even these incidental things uh, mean a great deal to her that he's trying to do what is important to her. And in a happy marriage, this is continual. This is day in and day out, moment by moment by moment, that they're, they're constantly orienting themselves and adjusting themselves uh, because they're always mindful of their love, uh, of this person whom they love. Um, when a couple loses that, when they're no longer mindful of these things and they just become very slipshod and careless and do not take seriously the things that each other hold serious, they, they begin to say, well, the reason why this is not important to him or it's not important to her is because I'm not important to him, because I'm not important to him because he doesn't care about this because even though he knows I do care about it he doesn't care you know and this is kind of a measure of how he cares about me this is very common and very steady in marriages and I think it, it is in the direction of answering the question because if we're mindful of God his love for us and our love for him there's nothing too trivial to offer, and everything we do during the day, we're, we're, we're mindful of doing uh, with that intention, with that understanding of this, we're doing this in this way at this time because of love for God. Uh, we can take things as a chore, <clears throat> our daily prayers, Sunday Mass attendance, right, whatever else we do, praying the rosary, we can take it as a chore that I'm doing. But that's not really a labor of love, is it so much? <clears throat> um, that is, um, uh, might be an expression of servile fear, for fear of, oh, gee, if I don't do this, somebody can really get punished. Um, or a, a heavy duty and responsibility, like I've got to pray the rosary now so my kids will learn how to pray the rosary. Um, but I wouldn't do this for myself and I wouldn't do it for God, but I'll do it for my kids, okay? I mean, don't get me wrong, at least a parent will do that out of love for his children. That's a start, right? That's a good thing. Parents will often do many things for their children that they would not do for themselves. And that's how many parents save their souls, because they're willing to do for their children that they wouldn't do for themselves. And so they actually do fulfill the law of God, and they do die in the state of grace. <clears throat> but um, in any case, our motivation should be continually love for God. And what we do, our morning offering that we pray, should orient our day in that direction. Whatever I do this day, I'm offering to God as a sacrifice motivated by love for Him. And so, um, if I um, give an alms, if I uh, slow down to let somebody pass me, contrary to my competitive spirit, that no one passes me, 
Um, if I uh, refrain from showing my displeasure at somebody cutting me off in traffic or whatever, and I do it out of love for God, I'm setting a marvelous example for the children, obviously, if the children are with me in the, in the road. Even if I were to say, okay, do you see that man there? He, he's driving recklessly and he just cut me off. Let's say a little prayer for him, you know, that we all get home safely, okay, including him. You know, I mean, what an example is that to a children, uh, to a child, instead of saying, you know, uh, gritting the teeth and, and muttering under one's breath, you know, <laughs> because somebody had the effrontery to get in front of me in traffic. <clears throat> um, these are all basic things that we do as we grow in, in love for God. And uh, we look back with regret at all the things that we, the times we didn't do it, we wish we had. But even retroactively looking back and repenting of those, we can still even then make an act of love for God by repenting of the times we didn't uh, act according to God's love. In any case, um, to uh, our writer makes a very good point here. And essentially, the point he's making is that the little way of St. Teresa, the child Jesus, is the way <laughs> for every one of us, okay? Uh, that is the key to the sacred heart of Jesus, the treasury of God's grace. And that is going through every day, offering God the little things that happen. I mean, most of us are not going to convert nations of pagans to to uh, faith, hope, and charity, you know, to the true faith. Most of us are not going to um, die as martyrs. Well, perhaps. <laughs> Most of us are not going to accomplish something that <clears throat> would be considered great things, you know, for God. But every one of us every day can do the little things in, in a great way, wholeheartedly. And the measure of the greatness of what is done is not the deed itself, but the love with which it is done. So can we actually uh, do what St. Teresa, the child Jesus, did? I mean, the saint who, the Pope who canonized her called her the greatest saint of modern times. That's pretty significant. There were some pretty great saints then, too. I mean, uh, you know, St. Teresa of Lisieux was a contemporary for the first uh, uh, so many years of her life of St. John Bosco, Saint, uh, the Curie of ours. I, I think they, their lives overlapped, uh, maybe not. Anyway, I'm getting a little foggy there, but regardless, I mean, modern times include some very great saints. Yeah. And so uh, St. Teresa of Lisieux, behind her convent walls, <clears throat> for those nine years that she lived there, accomplished great things for God. How? Well, because materially, what she did was not of any extraordinary significance. But the way she did them and the motivation that moved her to do them was truly great. Tremendous love. And this is what she's telling us. This is the way to heaven. This is the way to the heart of God. This is the way to serve God well in this world. Mm -hmm. She may have loved God more for we're wearing her habit with the pin pushed through her skin for that day, with a greater love than martyrs died for God, you know, at some time in the past. Her love for God in having that pin pierce her might have been greater than a martyr who was shot full of arrows or run through with a lance, you know. So great was her love for our Lord. That's something that is possible for every one of us because God is giving every one of us the grace necessary to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we just correspond, have the will, have the will to cooperate with the grace that God gives. Mm -hmm. That's the essential thing. Father, there's a, uh, a great morning prayer that was composed by, by St. Teresa where she, she talks about this, so just offering to God all of our thoughts, words, and actions mm -hmm. of the day. Uh, no matter how, how trivial they may seem. Um, but as far as he, he asked for some, some practical ways to go about doing this, I thought that um, a great resource for that would be uh, Father Paul O'Sullivan's book, oh, in, in, okay. An Easy Way to Become a Saint, where he talks about this, this very idea of, of everything that you do can be a source of, of grace. You know, he, he mentions the, uh, in that book the, um, one of St. Paul's verses where he, he says, you know, whether eating or, or drinking or, or sleeping or whatever, maybe you can do all of that for the glory of God. And I, I think it, it gets back to just having the right intention to, to do it out of love for God. You know, also in the uh, 
divine abandonment book. We, we discuss that a lot on this show, but I think it so perfectly describes um, everything that, that, that's essential mm-hmm. for, for the Catholic life. He talks about that, that same idea. You know, he, he even says that in that book that there's some who ask, you know, which, which life is, is greatest, which life gives the most glory to God. And he says it's not necessarily about the state. It's just it's about the, the intentions. It's about the, the, the individual person, how well they cooperate with, with God's graces, how, how, how fully they submit and embrace his will. And so I thought the, the, um, those would be a couple of great, great resources. Even great sinners, even those who've had seven devils cast out of them, yeah. can become great saints, right? Because they have loved much. Yeah. That's the motivation. Saint uh, Mary Magdalene is a fine example, all the way from Saint Mary Mag. And who was it? Who was it who stood with the Blessed Mother under the cross? This greatest, the the the, the, the immaculate Mother of God and this terrible sinner, uh, Mary Magdalene. I mean, there's such a juxtaposition of, of opposites, you might say, right? But what they had in common under the cross was a great, great love, as our Lord praised. St. Mary Magdalene, for that great love. She loves much. So, as you say, the spiritual writers all say the same thing, right through to St. Teresa, who lived it so so beautifully, mm-hmm. so eloquently, and that is, it's a matter of the motivation. It's a matter of the love for God. Mm-hmm. Father, this is just, just a side note, but just I just think that it's so remarkable to read this, this great variety of spiritual writers, all these different saints of those centuries and centuries apart, um, you know your, yourself today, and it's all saying the exact same. I think you're <laughs> loving me together. I, I, I'm, I'm actually not on the waiting list for Saint. Uh, I'm trying to get in line right now. Yes. Just trying to take a number. I, I just, I just think that it's, it's such a, uh, a. It just speaks to, to the truth of the Catholic religion to see how, how so, just centuries and centuries, millennia apart. And just from all walks of life, and they all say the exact same thing, and it's just incredible to, to realize that and, and to see that this this these people are in fact led by the a spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Um, I just think that, that that's remarkable. And compare that to this um, this mess that Francis has and the Novus Ordo, where you know how you mentioned before, if you if you were to pull. All of the uh, all of the attendants to a mass, no sort of mass, as they came out the door, you would get a different answer for every different person that you asked on, on any, even the most basic of Catholic Catholic beliefs. Um, but just a little little side note. Well, I agree. Uh, well, okay, fine. Let's jump to another email here. Could you please define the difference between name calling that is said with anger and name calling that is said with hatred? What is the difference between an angry thought, word, or deed and a hateful thought, word, or deed? Well, that's actually a good question. At first, it might seem to be kind of superficial, but it's not. Because anger is a passion. When we react to a passion, we can even react without malice of forethought. The will might not be involved. The intellect might not be involved. It's just a matter of lashing out in passion because something has irritated us and aggravated us. So one actually could lash out with the passion of anger, but not be culpable uh, of the a sin of anger because he might have done so before he, his will could even consent to it. And how would he know? But, well, if he, if he may react angrily with an, an angry word or an angry gesture, whatever it is, and then his will arrives on the scene, his conscience arrives on the scene and says, oh, what are you doing? You know, and he, he wants to almost smack himself and say, stop that. Because he says, that's wrong. You know? uh, he didn't think it before he reacted. It was just like a reflex. But now as soon as he's aware of the morality of what he's done, he rejects it instantaneously and says no. You know, sort of like a dog that lunges and the owner pulls him back and says no. You know, that's what our passions are like, like the lunging dog. You know, and um, so, um, but but hatred involves a malice that is in the will. In other words, hatred is what becomes of anger when it is consented to. When anger becomes formal and deliberate 
becomes a matter the intelligence is saying, I want, you know, this is good, this anger is good, I approve of this, this is the right thing to do, I want my revenge, I, I you know, I want to, uh, well, the intelligence, intelligence does not say, I want this, it's the will that says I want that. But the, it has to get past the intellect, the intellect has to somehow present the idea of the anger to the will in such a way that at least the intellect gives it some sort of semblance of good, rationality, purpose. The intellect has to sort of fudge on the vices in order to present it to the will under the aspect of some good, because the will by its nature is designed by God to approve of what is good. It has to disguise the evils, therefore, somehow, like the, the wolf in sheep's clothing, you know. Um, the most wicked thing we can, because of the disorder of our intellect and will, we can somehow cloak in the guise of some good purpose, okay? St. Paul uses the expression, how wrong it is to use liberty as a cloak for malice, okay? And with anger, <clears throat> when we, through the intellect, present that to the, the will under the guise of some cloak, <laughs> right, and the will approves of it, that's when it becomes formal and that's when it turns into hatred. Okay. So if, if one has the passion and it's just the passion reacting to something without the intelligence and the will uh, intervening and stopping it, right, the passion, the, the, the willful, the uh, sinfulness of an action, a word, is not in the passion, it's in the will consenting to it, okay? So if the will consents to the passion of anger and says, yes, I approve of that, I want that, that is where sin comes in. Now, someone might have a, a serious problem. Someone might be given to the passion of anger, and he knows it, okay? Someone might be prone to be very impatient, very volatile in his temper. And uh, so he, that person has a special obligation to be on guard against letting that passion get out of his control. It's almost like a person who has a pit bull and he knows the dog has a, you know, can be vicious. He has an obligation to restrain that so that it doesn't hurt anyone, right? If he doesn't restrain the animal, he may not be sicking the animal on anyone to attack them, but he is leaving that possibility there, and he's irresponsible, and he has a certain responsibility for what happens, and what might happen, even if it never happens. He's already consented to that in advance by setting up and not exercising the, the necessary cautions to prevent it from happening. See? So somebody who has a temper like that pit bull, who does not exercise some serious caution, pray about it, exercise himself in maintaining his self-control, if he just goes through life saying, okay, I know I have a bad temper, so what? That's too bad, you know? People just better stay out of my way. He's already consented to what his temper does tomorrow and the next day and the next day, even though at the time he may just react unthinkingly, he did think about it, and he has already said, look, I, uh, I, I'm not going to um, take the necessary precautions to exercise the control I need to control my, 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 my disordered anger. So I'm already consenting to all these things mm -hmm. in advance. Mm -hmm. but I, that, uh, that concept reminds me, Father, of in the, um, in the book of Genesis, after, after God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, he's talking about the, uh, the laws pertaining to justice, and, and in particular he talks about um, your oxen, I believe it is. If, if someone tells you that your oxen are, are, are wild, they, they seem to be crazy, and if you don't do anything about this and they end up killing someone or killing other livestock or whatnot, then you have a more severe punishment than if, if you didn't know, if no one had told you before that your oxen or your, or your livestock was, was this, this wild, had, had this well, temperament. That's a very fine example. There is a, uh, a much less punishment, if, if one at all. Yeah, exactly. Very good point. Um, 
Okay, Father, I think we have time for one more email, if we could. I thought this was an interesting question here. I know that from artist to artist, renditions of Our Lady are varied, but why are so many images of actual appearances of Our Lady so different from one another? For instance, Our Lady of La Salette looks quite different from Our Lady of Lourdes appearance, and Our Lady of Guadalupe especially looks vastly different from all the others. So what is the reasoning behind that, Father? Well, Our Lady's appearances um, are uh, tailor-made, as it were. They're, they're designed for those to whom she's appearing and those to whom she's speaking. And uh, Our Lady, yes, there are unique characteristics of each appearance of Our Lady. At Knock, Our Lady didn't speak at all. You know, at Fatima, she did. And she spoke in a certain order with the children, a certain way. She appeared even as a globe of light descending from the heavens, right, from heaven. And in Guadalupe, at Guadalupe, right, she uh, appeared, uh, she had the appearance of a, a peasant native Indian girl from indigenous to that area. And uh, one of Don, uh, of uh, Juan Diego's own people. She appeared to him as one of, her, one of uh, his own people. So Our Lady appears really in such a way to um, uh, evidently, uh, evidently uh, um, present herself to those she's appearing in such a way that they will feel at ease with her. And they will feel an affinity with her in some way. And um, so it was when Our Lady appeared at Fatima. So it was when Our Lady appeared at Lourdes to, to, uh, to St. Bernadette. <coughs> she did not appear as some sort of alien being in a uh, fantastic costume of another culture at another time. Why? Because Our Lady wants to appear in such a way that her message is the focal point. Her message is the focal point, and everything she wears when she appears is, has a reason for it. The sash, right? the rosary, the flowers, the iconography of her appearance is very, very important, too. Uh, so that when we have these devotions to Our Lady of uh, Mount Carmel, Our Lady of Grace, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Fatima, and so on, they each carry a message that somehow um, resonates with the words of Our Lady there, the message to the children. Usually when she appears, she appears to those who are children, actual children, or those who are have the simplicity of children, like Juan Diego, a very simple, humble man. And she chooses not the great and the proud and the the um, the, the uh, wise of the world, as St. Paul says, right? Because, evidently, if I can interpret, she wants someone who will convey her message faithfully without correcting it, editing it, saying, well, this is what she must have meant. But somebody who will just, in a childlike, childlike simplicity, convey the actual words that she said. It's hard to find people like that today, especially adults, who will actually convey the message. Tell anybody, will you please tell so-and-so this? By the time they actually convey the message, it might be quite unrecognizable, okay? And uh, because somebody's always um, receiving your words, but interpreting in the way that they hear them, they think this is what you mean, okay? But when Our Lady appears, she needs people not to do that. She, she finds people with this simplicity so that they will faithfully convey her words and not deviate from them. And so it is with Radhidat Subaru, so it was with Lucia dos Santos, so it was with uh, Juan Diego. They simply faithfully conveyed the message. And uh, part of that message that she has to convey is the expression on her face, the tone of her voice, the, the garb that she wears, uh, with the symbols that she carries, the rosary, the rose, and so on. Uh, so each one of these appearances is motivated by a special purpose. And that purpose is, uh, is reflected in her appearance. Mm -hmm. 
to those she comes to. I don't know of any better answer, if there is one. I'm sure there's a listener out there who will, uh, who will enlighten us all on that. But this is the best answer that I have. This is how I see it anyway. I think, I think that's great. That's a good point. Uh, well, Father, we are officially one week into the Lenten season. So do you have any uh, words of encouragement or advice for traditional Catholics out there? Uh, yes, if you're not hungry, you're not fasting. Okay? <laughs> How do you know that you're really fasting? I mean, we have the rules, one large meal, the main meal, take meat at the main meal, two smaller meals, together they can't eat the, equal the quantity of the larger meal. Uh, uh, some people think, well, I'll eat breakfast and lunch and then have to eat twice as much <laughs> for dinner just to, to make sure I'm fasting. And no, it doesn't work that way. Um, basically, if we're not experiencing hunger, it doesn't mean 24-7. Uh, it doesn't mean we have to be hungry in every moment. Like even after we're finished eating, we've still got to be hungry or we're not fasting. No. It just means certainly if we're not hungry by the next meal, then that's an indication that we're not fasting. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're not experiencing hunger uh, during the day, not necessarily throughout the day, but during the day, then we're not, we can be pretty sure we're not fasting. Now, the fast only uh, covers those who've completed, what, their 21st year and their 59th year. Um, but there are many of those, uh, especially older people who fasted, and they continue the practice of fasting because they, re they understand the importance of it, especially as a penitential exercise, making reparation for their sins, or offering it as a sacrifice for someone they love who needs God's grace. So even though the church does not require people who are 60 and over <coughs> to fast, there are many, many who do take it upon themselves as a free will expression of their love for God. But... Um, also, of course, <coughs> uh, these things are all penitential. We have the Station of the Cross, a penitential exercise, right? And uh, we should be making the stations. We have the Stations of the Cross available here on the, the What Catholics Believe website, <coughs> where you can follow the stations uh, daily. And I, I was happy to see that just two days ago they were posted and uh, on the WCB Ohio uh, website and already almost 500 people yep. had uh, viewed them and hopefully prayed the stations there. So um, very happy about that. Attending extra masses because what you're doing is you're attending the sacrifice of our Lord in Calvary and uh, and making your mind up to assisted mass with greater devotion, <coughs> being more mindful of the significance of the divine mystery of uh, the sacrifice of Christ there on the altar and appreciative of his presence there. These are all important things to do. Um, what we give up is one thing. I mean, the common Catholic practice is to give up something, um, whether it be you know, if you have a, a great love for Brussels sprouts and you've given them up for Lent, um, or you know, chocolate, or any type of confection, uh, fine, you know that's a, that's an excellent thing to do. It helps to mortify us and train the will to be able to maintain that control uh, when the temptations are there. It also enables us to make reparation for the sins of the past of overindulgence. Right? Mm -hmm. So giving up uh, things, we shouldn't give up anything that makes us difficult to deal with or that imposes penance on other people. There are people, some, some people who give up coffee during Lent, but that proves to be more of a penance for everyone who works with them than it is for them. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful that when we do offer a penance to God, we don't become a penance for everyone else around us. Okay? Um, and that is, you know, the, our Lord himself said in the, in the uh, in the gospel, uh, you know, fasting, you know, wash your face, comb your hair, no. don't go around looking like you're in misery, uh, moaning and groaning for hunger pains, because that just is a penance for everybody else, mm -hmm. and you're just trying to attract attention to yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, are, there are certain things that we need. You know, St. Alphonsus Liguori has written such beautiful things. Reading the, writing, the, the works of St. Alphonsus Liguori during Lent is a very, very good thing to do. Uh, especially preparation for death and other penitential type of works. Um, <clears throat> so if we were to do spiritual reading, there's something positive we can do. Uh, volunteering, for example, to in the pro-life effort 
going out of our way to get involved in the pro-life effort to try to save the tragedy of abortion. Uh, not only the loss of life of the child, but the, the, the damage it does to the life of the mother. Uh, both of those things should motivate us out of charity to go out of our way to work, to labor, as much as we can to prevent these, these evil things from happening. <clears throat> I always recommend praying 1 Corinthians chapter 13 every day during Lent with the idea that not only will we pray it every day, but we'll commit it to memory and then actually take it to heart also. Because in that one chapter of that one epistle of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he has given you a summary of the entire moral teaching of the Catholic Church. You might say he's given you a summary of the entire moral teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in 13 verses, which comprise that one chapter, the 13th chapter of that epistle. First Corinthians. So um, I would really encourage people to make that a part of daily practice during Lent and pay enough attention to it that they're remembering it as they go through Lent. Hopefully by the end of the Lenten season, they'll actually know it by heart. And then not let it rest there. I mean, taking it to heart is the key. But again, much of the program was about the whole question about the love of God and the love for God. And so there it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's all spelled out. There you go. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. No problem. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.